Welcome to Bottled Petrichor, a podcast dedicated to discussing key topics in Islamic history and thought. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy. I'm immensely pleased to have on today Dr. Tom Schmidt. Welcome, doctor. How are you? Very good to be here. Yes. Um, I had the good fortune of overlapping one year with Dr. Schmidt at Yale, and we also were neighbors, so Mm -hmm. I had plenty of opportunity to have very awesome conversations with him, and so I'm I'm super happy to have him on today, and I'm confident this is going to be a very insightful and engaging conversation. Um, But before I start, Dr., I wanted to ask, what got you interested in the study of early Christianity, and what are your more, what are your interests more generally? Uh, So, like you said, my name is Tom Schmidt. Uh, I was born into a Christian family, but I I don't consider myself to have become a follower of Jesus until I was 18 years old. Uh, It was my first year in college. I fell in love with the person of Jesus. I loved reading about him in the New Testament. And at the time, I couldn't read Greek, the original language of the New Testament, and I wanted to desperately. So I started taking Greek in college um, and Latin. I ended up majoring in Greek and Latin. And uh, that, unbeknownst to me, started me on the path of, of scholarship. I wasn't thinking about that at the time. Uh, and I graduated. I became a Latin teacher in the public schools. Um, over uh, my time in college and, and afterwards, I did a bit of traveling, spent some time in the Islamic world, became very interested in Islamic Christian relations and the history of Islamic Christian relations especially. And I eventually came to Yale's Ancient Christianity program because I wanted uh, a place where I could study the New Testament, study especially the, de- the development and formation of the New Testament but also where I could study the phenomenon of, of Eastern Christianity and its history. Uh, Christians um, who, who spoke in Arabic in the medieval world, spoke in Syriac, Coptic, and Yale was the perfect place for that. Uh, and so my interest, that's where my interests lie, is in the New Testament, its formation, and also in the history of Eastern Christianity, which of course overlaps a lot with uh, the history of Islam. Fascinating, fascinating. Thank you much for, so much for that. So I think it's, it's best that we just get started. And, and before I ask kind of who was Jesus and how we know about his life, I wanted to ask, what was the general political and religious background before Jesus? So if Jesus was born around 4 BC, or give or take a few years, and he was born in what is uh, now known as, the, as Israel and the Palestinian West Bank. And he came, he entered a world that had been crisscrossed by lots of empires. If we go back uh, 800 years before Jesus, the, the Jews were uh, had two independent kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel in the north, the kingdom of Judah in the south. And over those 800 years, uh, a wave of empires crisscrossed this area, starting with the Assyrians. They came in, um, then followed by the Babylonians and the Persians. All these three empires spoke uh, Aramaic as their language of empire, their lingua franca. And uh, Jews started speaking Aramaic as well. They, they uh, originally, of course, spoke Hebrew, started speaking Aramaic. Um, in the 330s BC, the Greeks came in and they forced Greek uh, upon the inhabitants. People started speaking Greek. Jews started speaking Greek as well. A few decades before Jesus was born, the Romans came in. They spoke Latin, but they kept Greek as this language as well. And uh, so Jesus came into this world that had all sorts of religious traditions um, they, they also, he also came into a world where, where the Jewish people were feeling very oppressed by some of these, uh, empires had persecuted them very severely. Um, and so the, the Jewish people were wondering, for instance, why God had not redeemed them from, from these oppressors. Um, there were all sorts of issues about how 
Jews should pay heed to the polytheistic, the pagan Romans, and things like that. And Jesus stepped into this environment in his ministry. And uh, I think a, a key point is that the Jews at this time, their, their scriptures spoke about this redeemer, or deliverer that would come, this Messiah figure that would rescue them. And so there was a lot of messianic expectations about this deliverer who would come and, and save them. And Jesus was ministering within this kind of pluralistic context. Thank you so much for that. And I think this next question is something that we're going to be touching upon quite frequently throughout. Who was Jesus? How do we know about his life and teachings? What languages did he speak? And, and what did he preach? So it, Jesus was born to a Jewish family. He was Jewish. He was born, like I said, about 2,000 years ago. He was a carpenter by trade, but also a traveling rabbi that is like a traveling preacher. Um, so we would, in modern terms, call him bivocational, uh, I suppose. And uh, Christians and myself uh, believe that he was the Messiah promised in Hebrew scriptures, that uh, he was the Savior, um, the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, his ministry brought him into much conflict with the religious leaders of the time, um, which we may talk about a little bit. Um, Christians, of course, believe that he was crucified uh, after a ministry of about a few years, probably three years, and that three days later he, he rose again. Um, and uh, traditionally, as you know, Muslims accept some of these claims. You know, they'll often accept the, the title Messiah, um, that he was born of a virgin, but, but they'll deny that he was the son of God or, or crucified, raised from the dead, things like that. Jews traditionally will view Jesus more negatively as like a false teacher, although contemporary Jews often will view him as misunderstood. Um, as far as his, his name goes, uh, in, we say Jesus, which is the English translation of the Greek Jesus, and uh, this comes from the Hebrew Yeshua, which, which means the Lord saves. Yah, Yahweh, is the, is the Hebrew word for God, which means the one who is. Uh, Yah saves. And um, in various Semitic languages, this becomes Yeshu in Syriac, Yasu, and uh, some Christian Arabs use that, and the Quran uses Isa. Uh, as far as the language that he spoke, scholars are united that he spoke Aramaic. That harkens back to those empires that swept in, the Persians, Babylonians, Assyrians, they spoke Aramaic. Um, there is a dispute about if he also spoke Greek. I think he probably did. The Greeks had been there for 300 years. Uh, there's also some dispute if he could read Hebrew. I, there are some accounts of him reading the Torah in Hebrew, so he probably did that as well. But he was ministering to people who spoke these same languages, Aramaic, Greek, Hebrew, and things like that. So thank you so much for that. Um, and so what, what did he preach exactly? He, you know, summing up Jesus's preachings in, in a few minutes is difficult to do. We're talking about someone who's one of the most influential people to ever live. And his teachings have had a profound impact on, on Western society and other societies as well. But if, if I had to do it, I would probably uh, break it into three categories. Um, the, the first category would be his moral teachings. And uh, with this, Jesus said there was the great commandment was to love God with all your heart. The second commandment, Jesus said, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus taught that all commandments hang on these two. They can be derived from these two commandments, to love God and love your neighbor. But he was very specific that what it meant to love God and, and love your neighbor uh, was an extremely demanding standard. And so what, what Jesus taught was that uh, to, to love your neighbor uh, means that you also have to love your enemy. And that for Jesus to, of course... Uh, 
he taught you shall not murder, but for Jesus, if you hate someone in your heart, uh, in the words of Jesus, you've already committed murder in your heart. And uh, you shouldn't commit adultery, of course, Jesus said, but if you if you lust after someone, you've committed adultery already. And so Jesus' standard for fulfilling these moral commands was extremely high, and this leads to the second thing he taught, which was that uh, we humans can't really do it. Uh, we've all committed sins. Um, we've all, if we haven't murdered someone, we've hated someone. If we haven't committed adultery, we've lusted. And that uh, from Jesus's point of view, this means that we have sinned. And this is why uh, the second thing Jesus taught was the need for repentance, to turn from our sins, to seek forgiveness. And uh, But Jesus also taught that this came with a problem, that we... Uh, we can't stop sinning. I mean, we can't help it. Um, we, we can't, even if we do repent, uh, fully repent, uh, we can't make up for the wrong we have done. Um, just like if, uh, you know, you're brought before a judge and you've committed some terrible crime and you say, I've done all these other extra good things. It doesn't make up for the wrong you've done. And so Jesus taught that uh, what we need is a deliverer, a savior figure to rescue us and defeat our sin and defeat the death that we deserve. And so the third thing that he taught was that he was that deliverer and rescuer and savior and Messiah. And uh, he taught that he was going to uh, defeat uh, death and, and our sin on our behalf and um, that this took place on the cross by his crucifixion and that his resurrection demonstrated that he had done this. And uh, these are uh, not some teachings that uh, are entirely new from a Christian perspective. They, they, they're crystallizations of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, which speak of, of a coming Messiah and deliverer according to tr uh, Christian interpretation. Um, and you, we find these teachings within uh, all throughout Jesus' sermons, the four Gospels that are accounts of his life, and things like that. Um, and I think you also asked about how we know about his life and his teachings. And... Uh, I, had, I just mentioned the four Gospels, and um, when scholars, when, when historians try to reconstruct the life of Jesus and his teachings, uh, what they do is they look for the earliest sources, um, first of all, and those sources can be found in the four, we, we call them the four Gospels. These are four accounts of Jesus that are found in the Christian New Testament. They were written by our early Christian disciples, and uh, we, we call the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, Gospel of Luke and Gospel of John. And these were written about anywhere between, let's say, 50 AD and, and 80 AD, several decades after Jesus's, Jesus's death. And um, these are, uh, by ancient standards, extraordinarily early accounts. Um, you know, if we go through all the emperors of, uh, let's say, Persia or the Ptolemies in Egypt, the Seleucids, they don't, uh, we won't find biographies this early and this many. Um, and so these, these are four accounts that they kind of afford a, a, a great opportunity for scholars to go and look at the life of Jesus. There are other things scholars do, though, to investigate how we know about Jesus. Um, they can look at other Christian writings that are found in the New Testament as well, by written by Jesus' disciples, letters and things like that that mention him. Um, they also can look at other early Christian writings outside the New Testament. People like Ignatius of Antioch talk about Jesus. He wrote around the year 107, and he, he mentions events in his life. But uh, most interestingly is that scholars can go to non-Christian writings, and uh, the most important of these are people like the Roman historian Tacitus, 
who wrote around the year 110 AD, and he um, wrote in Latin, and he has a paragraph on Jesus. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote around the year 90. These are all sources scholars can go to. Other non-Christian sources especially include uh, what we would call anti-Christian sources, so sources that are hostile to Christianity, like Celsus in the year 170, Porphyry in the year 300. And scholars can gather all these sources, and these are from uh, Christian sources, but also uh, Jewish sources, uh, Greco-Roman sources from different languages, and uh, compare them together to, to uh, see what they, what, what they agree on. And uh, remarkably, they, they pretty much agree on the outline of Jesus' life, um, that he was Jewish, he was born in Israel, uh, that he died uh, around 30 AD under Pontius Pilate, the, the Roman governor, um, that he was crucified, things like that. They, they also report uh, miracles that he did, and even anti-Christian sources talk about that. Um, and so what scholars can do is, is look at those and, and uh, sketch out Jesus's life um, in order to be confident about what he did and what, and what he said. Understood. Thank you so much for that. And before we kind of move on to a bit more about um, the New Testament and some of um, and some of the you know the companions of Jesus, I wanted to ask, kind of following up some of the stuff that you said, were there any issues with the existence of Jesus? I mean, the scholars ever say you know you don't really know if this figure actually mm-hmm. existed. Mm-hmm. Why would they have thought something like this? In, in the ancient world and medieval world, uh, the question over Jesus's existence didn't really come up. Uh, if you read, of course, Christians thought he existed. And if you read uh, non-Christian writings, like uh, Jewish writings um, in Josephus, uh, the Jewish historian uh, from around the year 90, if you read the Jewish Talmud, they all uh, don't, uh, they don't embrace Jesus, but they certainly believe he existed. They don't question that. If you go to anti-Christian sources like Celsus, Porphyry, uh, Heracles, um, the Apocriticus of Magnarius, uh, Magnes, Macarius Magnes, they all assume Jesus existed. They never question it. Uh, so this is something that seems universally acknowledged. If, if you read uh, Christian defenses of Christianity, ancient Christian defenses, they never touch this topic. It seems that it was just an issue that was never brought up. Um, everyone's acknowledged he existed. What starts happening, though, and this is just in the past hundred or so years, is you do get a very small minority of scholars um, or people, uh, I don't know if I, how many of them I would label as scholars, who will question whether he existed. And uh, I will say that I'm, I'm not aware of any uh, active person in academia who, who questions this. Um, there are very skeptical scholars who uh, are quite willing to say Jesus existed. I think that the question arises because of a misunderstanding of, of historical evidence and of ancient sources. Uh, for instance, these people are often very unaware of non-Christian sources in the ancient world and what they say about Jesus. Um, and I think that they will think uh, that perhaps the ancient world uh, subconsciously worked a little bit like today, where someone might have 500 sources about them, whereas with Jesus we have these four Gospels, we have these other things, which by ancient standards are extremely good but may not be what we would expect in the age of email and things like that. So I think that's where it's coming from. But as far as historical evidence, I mean, all sides point to, yeah, he, he absolutely existed. And so who was involved with Jesus while he was teaching? And who took up the mantle after he passed? And uh, how did these individuals understand and spread the teachings of Jesus? Jesus had 
in his during his ministry, he had a number of disciples. In fact, he had several hundred, probably around 500 um, at least. And these were men and women who followed him. But uh, he and he taught them, um, and they were with him throughout much of his ministry. But he selected 12 of them to be particularly close disciples, and he called them apostles. And uh, apostle is from the Greek apostello, apostelain, which means to send out. And these were people that Jesus sent out to to preach and teach. He selected 12 of them as kind of a symbolic number to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, which traditionally Israel was divided into 12 tribes. And, um, you know, we might translate apostle as missionary or ambassador or something like that, someone who's sent out. And uh, the important thing with these 12 is that Jesus uh, very clearly gave them authority to preach and to teach his message. He gave them a particular training um, in what, what Jesus termed the gospel, the, the gospel message, the good news of salvation. He also, according to the gospels, um, the, the four accounts of Jesus' life, he gave them authority to work miracles, signs and wonders, to cast out demons, things like that. And uh, after Jesus' death, um, in fact, when he was uh, he, he rose from the dead, he, he appeared to his apostles according to the New Testament, and then he commissioned them to go forth to the nations to spread his message. And in fact, the last command Jesus gave them, this is the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, he told them to go to all the nations, um, uh, teaching them to obey Jesus' commands. And uh, after that, um, this is when the apostles take over. And uh, there were 12 initially. Others were added later on to this number of, of 12, which kind of oddly mirrors the tribes of Israel, which had other tribes added as well. And uh, we know uh, something about these apostles. Uh, we know their names, for instance. We know the chief was named Peter, chief of the apostles. But there were other ones, very prominent ones, like uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They were very prominent. Paul the apostle, another James, um, the half-brother of Jesus, was very prominent. And uh, while scholars will debate um, if the apostles actually went to far-off nations, uh, what, what no one debates and what is clear is that uh, some of these apostles traveled thousands of miles throughout the Roman Empire, founding various Christian churches, and um, taking this message of Jesus uh, and, and uh, really starting this, what we call Christianity today. Um, we know that if it wasn't the apostles, someone at least went even farther because we find very early Christian uh, communities developing in places like the Middle East, Persia, uh, the Central Asia, Ethiopia, places like that, later on in, in India and China. Um, as far as the fates of the apostles go, uh, they uh, were often persecuted uh, by the governing authorities. Um, we have various accounts of this. Uh, many of them ended their lives in martyrdom. For instance, Peter was... was uh, crucified in Rome. Paul was, was beheaded. We know about this from various early sources from the first and second century, like Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch. Um, other apostles like John was exiled to Patmos, and James was, another James was stoned to death, another James was beheaded. And we know this from various sources, like uh, the Jewish historian Josephus talks about the execution of James, the brother of Jesus. Um, and and uh, it's one of the remarkable things uh, of the starting of Christianity, of how it developed through these kind of uh, grassroots methods um, and how it spread. 
And like I said, um, they, in terms of how they understood and, and spread his teachings, that, that Jesus, uh, by sending these apostles, it, it was in a, a similar way that God sends prophets, that the apostles had sort of a prophetic standing in, in early Christianity. And so what they said was authoritative uh, to Christians. And um, they, of course, were, were instrumental in writing of the New Testament and in disseminating it as well, which we may talk about later on. Yes. Um, and before we move on, I wanted to ask you, you said the word church. Now, is a church a physical structure that you know people build, or is it? what exactly do we mean when we talk about church? A great, great question. Today, when people say church, they sometimes mean a physical building, but uh, that's not the original term. Uh, the, the term church... Um, comes is a translation of the Greek word ekklesia, which means a gathering of people, a body of people, an organization of people. And so when I use the word church, what I meant is this network of followers of Jesus. And they might have individual communities in individual cities. Um, originally, the early Christians did not have church buildings. They met in one another's homes, or they met by rivers, they met outside. Sometimes they were persecuted, and they, they had to meet secretly. Other times they were able to meet out in open um, and so it's important not to not to mistake that that uh, you know the, the the church the the original definition means the group of followers of Jesus they're viewed as as a church and in Scripture in the New Testament they're often likened to a body that, that everyone has a different role to play and they all are integrated with Jesus as the head of the the head of the church. Understood. Thank you for that. Um, so what is the New Testament? And what was the history of its writing, its, its canonization? Um, and I, I guess we, we could just, just start with that. You know, maybe a bit about the anatomy of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. The New Testament uh, is the, the purely Christian portion of the Bible. So you have the Christian Bible is made up of two parts. The Old Testament, which is the Hebrew scriptures. These are the scriptures that uh, contemporary Jews view as inspired by God. And they were written before Jesus uh, over a long period of time by many people. The New Testament... Um, is made up of 27 documents, uh, and these 27 documents are uh, can be attributed to uh, Jesus's uh, disciples and apostles, or to their disciples. And um, just a brief overview of the contents: the, the first four books are the four Gospels in the New Testament, and like I said, these are accounts of Jesus's life. The fifth book is called the Book of Acts, and it takes up right after Jesus's resurrection and ascension and is a story of the deeds, the acts of the apostles up to about 60 AD. So Jesus crucified 30, 33 AD. Book of Acts gets up to about 60 AD. Um, that's the fifth book. The, the next uh, several books in, in the Bible, uh, 21, ne- next 21 books are letters. And these are letters from various apostolic figures. Uh, there's 13 letters by the apostle Paul. There's three by John, two by Peter. Uh, one by James, one by Jude, another uh, letter that is anonymous, that is written by a disciple of the, someone associated with the apostles. Um, there's a big debate about who wrote it. Some people say a guy named Apollos. Some people say Barnabas. Some people say Paul. But these are all very early figures. And then the final book is the 27th book. is called the Book of Revelation. And this is uh, different from all the other books. It is a cosmic vision of the end times when Jesus returns to to judge uh, the living and the dead. And um, that is attributed to John, one of the disciples of Jesus. Um, In terms of the the history of of 
writing and the New Testament and canonizing it. Uh, one of the things that how the, the New Testament differs from the Quran is that the New Testament, as you, you have probably guessed, is written by uh, lots of different people, not just one person. Um, there's many authors, and, and they're also written in very different circumstances and locations. So you have some letters are written from prison. Some letters are written, you know, under threat of death. Um, others uh, seem to be more formal publications, uh, like the Gospel of Luke, for instance. Um, others, like the Gospel of Mark, uh, is written by Mark, and uh, history tells us we have early Christian testimony um, from about the year 110 that, that Mark recorded Peter's preachings. He heard Peter's preaching, and he wrote it down, and Peter approved of, of, of his writing. Um, and so there's a lot of diversity in the New Testament, and it was also written over several decades, uh, probably between 45 and 85 A.D., and the, the recipients are diverse as well. There's multiple different recipients. And so uh, you might have uh, people in Rome or people in Corinth and Greece or people in Jerusalem, things like that. And so it brings up a question of, well, how, how did all of this get put together? Uh, and there's various theories floating around in popular culture, because, of course, if you have lots of people writing something over many decades in many places, who, how did this all get Get grouped together, and there's various popular ideas that I'll, I'll just run through. Like one is, um, you know, this idea that that the Bible uh, was just came from heaven by God directly, and of course the Bible doesn't even claim that. The, the Christian idea of inspiration is not that God dictated something word for word, but that God inspired prophets and apostles uh, to write something. Um, so that that's not how the New Testament came together, and the, and the New Testament doesn't claim that at all. Far from it. Um, another idea is, uh, you know, I might call it the conspiracy theory. It's this idea that, you know, some late Christian emperor in Rome, after Rome became Christian in the 400s or maybe 300s, uh, kind of plotted together in some back smoke-filled room to put the New Testament together. Uh, or maybe it was a Roman pope, you know, a bishop of Rome did this. Uh, you'll see this in books like The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. Uh, but that's not true either. We, we don't have any evidence that, that the Roman emperor really had much to do with, with this or that um, a Roman bishop had anything to do with it other than what other, other bishops might, might have. Um, even if uh, a Roman emperor tried to do something like that uh, by you know, the 300s and 400s, the, the Christianity was uh, well beyond the Roman Empire and, and uh, they were in, Christians were in Persia and Ethiopia and they Armenia and the, among the Goths, and uh, the Roman Emperor wouldn't have had anything to do with those folks. Um, so that that also doesn't really solve the the, the problem. Um, other ideas are that a big church council got together, and it's called Ecumenical Church Council, a worldwide church council, and uh, the the collective body of Christians at some point decided on this. Uh, the pro it sounds like a good idea, but the problem is when you go and you look at council, conciliar records, records of these big councils. The first one being the Council of Nicaea in 325. Uh, they, they didn't talk about the contents of the New Testament. They, they talked about other things. Um, and so that doesn't seem to be <laughs> what happened either. And so the question is, well, what other option do we have? How did this come together? This is uh, in some ways what my dissertation is about. And uh, the answer seems to be that um, uh, it's kind of a multi-step answer. And one is that Firstly, the apostles do seem to have had a hand in this, um, that they, they wrote uh, many, many of the documents. Their disciples, I believe, wrote um, the rest. 
uh, of the documents and that they were uh, very clear that uh, these represented authoritative teaching, these documents, and that um, they should be held in honor. We also have examples of apostles affirming the teachings of other apostles. So, for instance, Peter, in the second letter of Peter, he affirms Paul's letters, and Paul affirms, uh, for instance, the ministry of Luke and um, ministry of James, and Matthew, of course, was a direct apostle of Jesus. So we have all these kind of multi-layers multi of, of, uh, of affirmation going on. But uh, that's not the whole story, um, and uh, perhaps I can illustrate this by, by an example. So uh, if, we, if we go back, let's go back about you know, almost 2,000 years to the very earliest Christian communities. So uh, Jesus, you know, crucified, died around 30 AD. If we go back to those early years, just a few years after that, and we go to a, a, a Christian gathering, a church service, what we would call, and we see what their Bible looked like. We'll notice that they're not reading a New Testament because the New Testament had not been written yet. Uh, they're reading from the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And one day, if you stick around long enough in some of these communities, like if you're in Corinth in, in modern-day Greece, uh, one day they will get a letter from the apostle, from an apostle, from the apostle Paul, and they will start reading this letter in their church services alongside of other, the Old Testament, alongside other scriptures. And this is exactly what the apostles intended. They, we see this in their letters where they say, read this in your church services. In uh, the letter of Colossians, for instance, says this. And um, this letter begins to be part of their scripture. And then as the years roll by, there's more letters come in. Um, other churches get different letters, and they start kind of sorting these things out and, and interacting and, with one another. And, and they hear you uh, have a letter from an apostle in some other church, and they exchange those letters, and they begin building their, their New Testament. Um, and so this process goes on, uh, and the places that, that were located in areas that received these letters uh, had a head start. Uh, because far-flung areas that were speaking different languages than the original languages these documents were written in took a little bit longer. And over church history, you see the New Testament beginning to be collected and assembled. Um, it, it seems that the churches were deeply concerned with finding documents that they said have apostolic origin, that have some kind of um, apostolic oversight to them. Uh, and so, um, for example, uh, we start seeing around the year 200, uh, the old Latin translation of the New Testament occurs, and it seems to have 27 books, the same books that we have today. Uh, our first full canonical list of the New Testament um, comes from origin around the year 235, and it's 27 books. Um, both of these, the old Latin and origin, are coming from the Roman Empire. If you go outside the Roman Empire, you'll see it takes a little bit longer to reach that 27-book uh, number. In some cases, it takes much longer. Uh, if you go earlier than 200, um, if you go into the 100s, uh, we don't have complete canonical lists of the New Testament that date that early. We have a partial list called the Miratorian Canon, and it has 20-something uh, books of the New Testament today. The problem is that it's, um, it's missing its beginning and probably its end, so it's incomplete. So we, we don't know what else it was going to include. Um, we can also go to other ancient writers, uh, like for instance, I'll give an example, like an, a writer, Irenaeus, who's writing in France, around the year 180, and he doesn't give us a list of New Testament books, but 
What he does is he quotes from what he considers the New Testament. He writes hundreds of pages of material, and you can go and see what he's quoting from. And, and you see that his New Testament is about 20-something books. Uh, he's missing some, but we don't know if he's missing those because he omitted them or because he just didn't have time to quote from them. Um, and uh, the, in my dissertation, one thing I investigate is, is how... Uh, the book of Revelation was integrated into the New Testament. That that was probably the most controversial book, and uh, we see that um, early on it was it was considered authoritative. It was considered apostolic in the first, in the second, and third centuries. But in certain places, starting in the fourth century, people start not liking it, um, and it takes a while for that dispute to to settle down. But to sum up, the the New Testament I think was uh, written by uh, apostles or by people who were associated with them and that uh, the, the assembly of the New Testament was something that the apostles helped with, but that ultimately was sort of an organic, independent process that churches went through um, over the decades and centuries and, um, after uh, the apostles. Were, were there any books that were considered inspired and authoritative which didn't make it into the final list of the New Testament? Interesting question. You will find in, in ancient Christian discussions over the New Testament, um, we can go back, we can read these, and you'll find that these Christians will sometimes have different categories than some Christians have today. So they may, for instance, believe that uh, there are books in the New Testament, and these are of supreme authority, but that they may also include uh, some a handful, a select few books that are not in the New Testament but are still considered valuable or, or worthy. Occasionally they will say inspired, uh, and by that they, they seem to mean a lesser form of inspiration than, than the New Testament. And so some examples of, of these, for instance, are uh, sometimes we call them apocryphal books like the Book of Maccabees, um, which can be found in... in uh, in um, the Greek canon of the Old Testament, but not the Hebrew canon of the Old Testament. Um, and there's other examples of this as well. Uh, and so you, you will have this kind of other category. Most often, though, what they would do is they would have uh, a, a list of books that are undisputed and then a separate list of books that are disputed in the sense that some Christians acknowledge them as part of the New Testament. Some don't. And we have these uh, these discussions. For instance, Saint Jerome talks about this um, in the year 400, and he says, "Look, you know, we some churches don't accept um, this. Is, by this point, the Revelation of John is becoming disputed." And he would say, "You know, they they reject this, but um, we think they shouldn't. But uh, there's kind of a limited canonical flexibility going on where they were, you know, there was some latitude given. What was not, what was." Uh, inflexible is there were certain other documents that were wholly rejected um, and these were documents that usually came from a group called the Gnostics that wrote uh, letters of, of the apostles or, or accounts of Jesus's life. They were working around the year in the 200s and the 300s um, or the late 100s, uh, mid to late 100s and um, sometimes you'll hear about these, these other gospels like Gospel of Mary, Gospel of Judas, and these were wholly rejected because they were not viewed as coming from an apostle. And scholars today 
Um, while you will find scholars debate about whether, for instance, Matthew really wrote Matthew in the New Testament, scholars are united that n no one thinks that, for instance, you know, the Gospel of Judas was written by Judas or the Gospel of Mary was written by Mary. These are, are very late, uh, late creations um, that they're not grounded in history. They're not from the first century. And, uh, and so uh, I suppose that, that gets at what you're getting at. Yeah, yeah. What was the status of the New Testament to our early Christians? I should also ask, how did people refer to this collective, to this um, you know, collection of writings? Uh, you know, of course, we call it the New Testament today, but historically, how do people have referred to this? Yeah, that's a, that's a very insightful question. Uh, so uh, it, it's important to note, I've alluded to this before, but that the, the Christian understanding of sacred text is different from the traditional Islamic understanding. Um, traditionally, Muslims often believe that the Quran is word for word God's speech that he it didn't physically say, but that he he composed in his mind or sent down um, to earth. Uh, Christians don't believe that about the Bible. They believe that the Bible was inspired by by God, so that God sent His Spirit into the hearts of prophets and apostles, and kind of co-labored with these individuals in writing inspired documents that had authoritative teaching. And, and uh, narrative histories and things like that. And that, that what that means is that the character, the culture, the, the traits of these authors are integrated into these documents um, as well. Uh, and in terms of the New Testament, Christians believe the same thing happened. Um, but b before I say a little bit more about that, I should probably, I should probably explain what a testament is and what, what Christians mean by that. Uh, we use the word testament. Um, testament is a translation of the Greek word diatheke uh, or, or the Hebrew word berit. And uh, these are translated variously in English as either covenant or testament. So if you ever hear the word old covenant, new covenant, old testament, new testament, those come from the same exact Hebrew and Greek words. Uh, they did not distinguish between those two ideas. And so when I say new testament, um, in English that becomes ambiguous because in English when I say New Testament I could mean the written form of the New Testament in the Bible or I could mean a new covenant like a new a covenant meaning agreement or, or contract between God and his people and in in Greek and Hebrew one word covers all those meanings in English we differentiate between that and so when early Christians view, talked about the New Testament the first instances we have of them speaking about the New Testament is not, they use the word kine diatheke, Greek for New Testament. This does not mean that uh, they're talking about a written New Testament. What they're talking about is a new agreement between God and humanity. And this agreement uh, for them was prophesied in the Old Covenant. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, make the Old Covenant um, obsolete in the sense that it eliminates it. Christians view that it fulfills the Old Covenant the old Hebrew scriptures, which itself mention this coming new covenant. If you go back to the Hebrew scriptures, uh, prophet Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, 31 through 33 talks about how God is going to send a new covenant to his people. Um, and he's going to write it on their hearts. And, uh, that will become important in a moment. Uh, prophet Ezekiel mentions the same thing. Psalm 110 mentions a, a changing of the priesthoods that will happen. And so Christians view this new testament um, as being this agreement that Jesus made with between God and humanity uh, through his death and resurrection, 
This is, um, if, if your listeners are familiar with the Eucharist or the Last Supper, um, Jesus took bread, he broke it, he said, this is my body uh, broken for you. He took uh, uh, wine and, and he said, take this, this represents, this is my blood of the new covenant, he said. And he see, he's claiming this language of new covenant um, in this. And so, like I said, our first references of New Testament, new covenant, mean this kind of agreement. And it's important to note that um, I was previously speaking about how the New Testament documents, the written form, were, were, were gathered together. But from a Christian perspective, that's not all the New Testament is. The, the New Testament is much more, in fact, the, the, the more important part of it is not what is written down on paper. It is this agreement that has been written by God uh, on our hearts. The, the New Testament itself proclaims this. Uh, for instance, uh, the, the letter 2 Corinthians um, chapter 3, verse 6 says that uh, explicitly that the New Testament is not of the letter. It is of the Spirit. It is not written with pen and ink. It is written on human hearts. And it speaks of this letter from Jesus that is written on the hearts of believers. And that is the foundation, uh, the foundational New Testament. That's the really important thing. Um, I've, I've, as I've explained to others, that uh, it's important from a Christian perspective to have the 27 books of the New Testament. But if you don't, and there's a lot of people who don't, they live in areas that haven't been translated, the most important New Testament to have is this new covenant, this thing that's written on your hearts. Uh, and so um, this is one of the reasons why Christians are not uh, particularly troubled by this idea of the New Testament slowly uh, being written over several decades by the apostles um, and by churches over the ensuing decades and centuries figuring out these apostolic documents um, because uh, from a Christian perspective, it's, it's this new covenant that is what is, is of vital importance. Um, the, the New Testament, the written form of it, is also extremely important, but is, is, uh, is built on this other foundation of it. So you had touched upon this, but I think it's important to ask, how does the New Testament relate to the Hebrew Bible? as well as other literature uh, contemporaneous with it. Yeah, I, I, I alluded to that. So from a Christian perspective, the, the New Testament is a fulfillment of the Hebrew Bible. The, the Hebrew Bible uh, is, is really an extraordinary document. Um, like the New Testament, it's written by many, many different people. Uh, it has many genres of literature, even more so than the New Testament. And uh, its writings go back. I mean, I, I think a fair argument can be made that the earliest documents in the Hebrew Bible are the earliest uh, human records that have been uh, continuously preserved. That were, there's never, you can probably find some older stuff buried in Egyptian pyramids and stuff, but these are things that have been lost and then found thousands of years later. But the Hebrew uh, scriptures have always been with us. And um, th these, these uh, Hebrew scriptures uh, tell a story about God's people and his interaction with, with the people of God. Um, which, according to the Hebrew scriptures, are the Jews, the people of Israel. And there are, throughout this, there's, of course, I'm glossing over many things here, but there are these promises of one day a Messiah figure coming, a deliverer coming. And, uh, you know, we see these, for instance, a very famous one that you hear at Christmas time is from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6, where, where God says, you know, the scripture says, unto us a son is given, unto us a child is born. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, uh, Father of Eternity, and Prince of Peace. Um, and there are these, these uh, Jews and Christians agree that the Hebrew scriptures 
contain prophecies, promises of this new covenant and this Messiah figure. They disagree on how that's to be interpreted. But Christians, of course, interpret these as referring to Jesus. And um, they look to uh, things like Zechariah, uh, I think chapter 10, who talks about how God will be pierced and forgiveness will flow from that. And they view that as an instance of the, of the crucifixion. Um, and so, like I said, that this New Testament does not, uh, it only replaces the Old Testament in the sense that it fulfills it. The, the Old Testament is still valid and inspired by God, and it's not to be rejected. It's embraced as, as giving uh, profound teachings, but that the New Testament sort of crystallizes and fulfills and explains and elucidates these things. Um, as far as how the New Testament relates to contemporary literature, uh, you can, um, because of the way that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, if you're, if you're looking for, for, for something else with, with your question here, but um, the New Testament, because uh, of, of Christian views of inspiration, is of course, you know, it's written in Greek because the Greeks came in, it's influenced by contemporary accounts and documents, and we can see, we see the New Testament playing out in history. So contemporary documents um, are are ways that we can, you know, other avenues we can peer in to get cultural insight or historical details about what's happening in the New Testament. So one of the one one thing I've uncovered in my in my dissertation uh, that that I think is 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 a relatively new phenomenon is this idea that the New Testament is constructed like a Greco-Roman testament, um, and this is an example of kind of shared cultural. Uh, shared culture between the New Testament and other contemporary documents. And it turns out that if you look at ancient testaments, ancient covenants, they have certain characteristics. For instance, um, the, in the Greco-Roman world, a testament uh, was viewed as a last will and testament, something that someone would write so that when they die, um, they can deed or will or bequeath things to their heirs. And so they expected, for instance, that a testament would be sealed with seven seals of witnesses to make sure nobody tampered with it. They would expect that you concluded the testament with an oath um, of the testator. Uh, they would expect that uh, you also have some kind of oath that nothing has been added or taken away from this, and nobody altered this in any respect. You would have an appointment of heirs. And the curious thing about the New Testament is that it follows this pattern, that you come to the final document, the book of Revelation, and you look how it ends. And what does it say? It's the final verses of Revelation say, do not add or take away from this document. Uh, what else does the final verses say? They, there's an oath from Jesus. I, Jesus, have sent my, my angel, my messenger, to testify to you these things. Um, you also see an appointment of heirs in the final, in the final pages of Revelation. Um, also, you find this throughout the New Testament as well, where, where God says, uh, if you follow, if you have faith, if you follow my commands, you will be my son, which is an, a, you know, a designation of an, of an heir. Um, these are sometimes more explicit and elsewhere in the New Testament where we are viewed as heirs of God, heirs of the promise and the covenant. Uh, again, you know, what happens when a, for a will, for a testament to be opened, it, it's only valid if someone, if the person dies. And this is what happens with the New Testament. Jesus dies. But uh, remarkably and uniquely, he rises again. And so there's this picture of, in the book of Revelation, of Jesus, who is opening up a scroll that is sealed with seven seals. And Jesus is portrayed as a slain lamb. Um, 
It's one of the allegorical imagery that happens in Revelation. Uh, Jesus, one of the uh, titles for him in Christian theology is Lamb of God, who is slain for our sins. And there's this image of this slain lamb who's alive. So he's been slain, but he's alive now. And he's opening the seven-sealed scroll, which seems to be the New Covenant, the New Testament. And Jesus is able to make a will, put it into force by dying, but then rising again and opening it himself. Um, and, and this uh, shows uh, both it explains Christian theology, but it also draws upon these cultural understandings of what a testament actually is. Um, I should add one more thing that this does draw from Greco-Roman tradition, but the idea of what a covenant or testament is goes back even further and can be found in the Old Testament, in the ancient Near East, 500,000 BC, even earlier, 1500 BC, you know, starting with the covenant of Abraham and, uh, and going on down. Thank you so much for that. Um, so, was the New Testament preserved? Uh, why would someone think otherwise? Uh, did people historically have issues with the preservation of the New Testament? It's another great question that, that comes up and one that I'm, I'm very interested in. I, so, Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman, some of your listeners may know about. He's probably the most prominent scholarly critic of, of the preservation of the New Testament. And he is very famous for saying that there are more variations in the manuscripts of the New Testament than there are words in the New Testament. So there's, you know, 138,000 something words in the New Testament. And Bart Ehrman will say that we, when you look at the New Testament manuscripts, we've got more differences between them than we have words. And, uh, and actually I could even make that sound worse. Um, if you go and you look at other ancient documents that are written about the same time, of similar length of the New Testament, you look at how many variations they have in their manuscripts, and they invariably have way less. And so Bart, uh, his his critique is is to say, hey, this is we've lost this message. It's been corrupted. Um, and of course, there uh, in in Islamic theology, there there are many strains that will say similar things uh, about the New Testament. Um, I have to say that I actually agree with, with Bart Ehrman in the number of variations. He's right about that. There are many more variations than there are words in the New Testament. Where I disagree is what that means. And uh, I think it actually means the opposite, um, or it means nothing at all. Uh, and, and here's why. Um, as, as your listeners probably know, uh, in the ancient world, we didn't have fax machines and photocopiers and printers, scanners, typewriters. So everything had to be written out by hand when you wrote a book. You had to write it out by hand, which was a laborious, time-consuming process. But then you only have one copy. And when you want to publish it, you have to manually copy it out again by hand every single time you make a copy. And the problem with this, it's inherent in ancient and medieval publication, is that mistakes can creep in. You can skip a line. You can skip a word. You can transpose words, misspell things. Uh, you can be copying from an old manuscript where, where you know, there was some water damage and something is unclear and you write the wrong thing down. Uh, this is very common. Um, and so uh, the issue is, though, is that uh, the more manuscripts you have of an ancient work, the more variations you will also have. Because every time someone copies out a work, they, they generally will make some mistakes. So the more manuscripts you have, the more variations you have. And the reason why the New Testament has so many variations is because we have so many thousands of manuscripts. And the reason why those other ancient works have fewer variations is because we have way less manuscripts. For instance, uh, you know, Athenaeus, his Dignosophistae, um, it's an ancient work. Uh, we've got like one manuscript. And so 
Um, it's kind of a silly comparison because uh, having more manuscripts is a really good thing. We want more manuscripts because then we can check for errors. Whereas with uh, Athenaeus' Deipnosophistae, if we only have one manuscript, we're stuck and we can't check for errors. So that statistic, I think, can be extraordinarily misleading um, because it really says little about whether the New Testament has been preserved or not. And so what I, what I will say is that when scholars investigate an ancient or medieval work and they want to uh, reconstruct, to verify the original authorial text, the text that the author wrote down, um, and they want to be confident in that, they look for a certain number of things. And uh, what they want is they would like, uh, let's see, four or five things. I'll run through them real quick. They want a lot of manuscripts because the more you have, the, the more opportunities you have to check for errors. Uh, they also want a lot of early manuscripts because the more early manuscripts you have, the, the, the more manuscripts you have that are closer in time to when the original was written, the fewer opportunities you have for errors to creep in because the, in, in general, the fewer generations of copying would take place. Um, you also want, uh, a third thing you want to look for is you would like to have a lot of ancient, if possible, a lot of ancient translations. Just like in the contemporary world, ancient documents, popular ones, were translated into other languages. And we sometimes still have those translations. And these provide a, an amazing window to go back and check to see what that translator was looking at and check various readings and to check for errors. Um, and the more you have, the earlier translations, the better. And uh, fifthly or fourthly, you'd also want uh, to look and gather all of the quotations of this work. So if you're reconstructing an ancient work, you want to go and see, did any of your authors make large quotations of it? Because then I can look at those quotations and check those quotations against that. It's great if those quotations are early as well. And then um, a fifth thing is for all of these, you want these to be as diverse as possible, as scattered over a wide area so that you can uh, ensure that these come from multiple independent streams of transmission, lines of transmission, um, so that you, you can be fairly confident that they're not crisscrossing. So you can triangulate back to an original. Well, well, how does the New Testament stack up to this? Well, when we when we look at the New Testament, I already mentioned the manuscripts. Uh, the New Testament has something like 5,500 manuscripts in Greek, thousands more in other languages. It's it's uh, by far more than any other ancient text. Um, it's it's unprecedented. Uh, it, that's number one. Number two, early manuscripts. So, um, okay, having a lot of manuscripts is great, but if these are all 1,500 years removed from the original, that's good, but it's not that great. Uh, so what you want is early manuscripts. The New Testament um, just has an extraordinary abundance of early manuscripts. The, I'll give you an example. Um, the work of Virgil, the poet, the Roman, uh, ancient Roman poet Virgil, his work, the Aeneid, is usually thought of as the best preserved classical text from antiquity. We have to wait about 400 years to get a complete copy of Virgil's Aeneid. With the New Testament, uh, we have to wait um, about 300 years, 250, 300 years. The Codex Sinaiticus is a very famous manuscript from uh, the Egyptian desert, Monastery of St. Catherine's in Sinai. It's a complete New Testament. It's the earliest fully complete copy, and um, it's ex just simply extraordinary. We have other similar manuscripts of similar dates as well, Codex Vaticanus um, and other things like that, uh, that that are of similar dates and have either the entire or almost the whole New Testament. Um, but, uh, of course, that still leaves, uh, you know, a few hundred years between the original 
documents and when these manuscripts come. But with the New Testament, uh, I've only been speaking about complete manuscripts. We have many other manuscripts that are earlier, but are incomplete or partial because they've been damaged or lost leaves. And uh, I can give you some examples of these. Uh, Papyrus 45 um, has large portions of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Book of Acts. Uh, Papyrus 46 has uh, large portions of most of Paul's letters. That's 13 documents. Papyrus 47 has uh, large portions of the Book of Revelation. These are all, uh, you know, within within 200 or less years of the originals. Um, they date from between the year 200 to 50, and of course, the New Testament was written between 45, 50 A.D. and 85 A.D. Uh, we can keep going back, though. We can get into the 100s. Uh, we have uh, manuscripts of the New Testament um, from the 100s. Of, of uh, These are small fragments, but, but they're quite early. Uh, of, for instance, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, Papyrus 104, uh, Gospel of John, P52. We have fragments of Mark and Luke as well that date from, from those early dates. Uh, the earliest we have is probably Papyrus 52 of the Gospel of John, which dates... Um, you know, between roughly 125, 150, 170. These dates are done paleographically by paleography, I mean handwriting analysis, and so they could, you know, budge several decades in either direction, earlier or later. And um, this is just extraordinary. We have a, a continuous, unbroken tradition of, of New Testament texts from the 100s up to, up to the printing press. Um, and in terms of the other factors I mentioned, uh, ancient translations, you know, the New Testament was translated into uh, many, many ancient languages, more languages than any ancient document. Um, I can give you some examples. Uh, the Old Latin from around the year 200, uh, we have, that's when the translation took place. Manuscripts of the Old Latin go back to the 300s. Uh, same with uh, another Latin translation, the Vulgate by St. Jerome around the year 400. Uh, and we have 5th century four, four manuscripts from the 400s. And we could go down the list, multiple Syriac, Coptic translations from going back to the 2nd or 3rd centuries, the manuscripts going back to the uh, 300s, or, or perhaps with Coptic, the 200s. And uh, the, the list goes on, Gothic, Armenian, Georgian. These are all extremely early from 5th century, and all of these provide opportunities to check. Uh, in terms of quotations, which is another category I mentioned um, we just have an unprecedented number of Christian commentaries where we can reconstruct. So needless to say is uh, we could, if we lost all New Testament manuscripts, we could pretty much reconstruct the whole thing based on quotations. Um, I used to actually not believe that. I thought that that was an exaggeration. But then I, when I was at Yale Divinity School. I, I remember going through this aisle of books that was just ancient Christian commentaries and started realizing that there were so many line-by-line -line commentaries in the ancient and medieval world that that, 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 that was true. Uh, so needless to say is that we have extraordinary witnesses. There's really nothing like this that the ancient world has. And to give you a, a uh, maybe a concrete example of this, um, what I can say is that uh, when scholars evaluate ancient textual traditions of books, they, they do the same thing they do with the New Testament. They gather all these things, all the manuscripts. If there's translations, most of them don't have translations, but some ancient books do. They gather those, quotations, things like that. And even after all of that, uh, scholars will have to resort to something called conjectural emendation. They have to conjecturally emend the text. What that means is that even after doing all of this, there are still places in the ancient text that are lost, that are hopelessly corrupted. 
where uh, they have to conjecturally amend. That's a, that's a fancy word for making an educated guess about what was there. And as far as I'm aware, this is true for any every ancient publication of any significant length. Curiously, interestingly, amazingly, is that this is not true for the New Testament, that the New Testament does not have any locations that require conjectural emendation. And uh, the ironic part in this is that um, Art Ehrman, that great critic, he seems to agree with this. Um, I, I read uh, his book, uh, The Text of the New Testament, fourth edition. He, he co-did this with Bruce Metzger, Bruce Metzger, a legendary uh, New Testament textual critic. And um, they talk about conjectural emendation, and, and they, they say, uh, quote, that, that the need for conjectural emendation in the New Testament is, quote, reduced to the smallest of dimensions. And then they give one possible example, but they dismiss it as that even this can't even qualify. And to me, what that means is that uh, that inescapably means that the text has been preserved. We don't have to conjecture what was there. Uh, however, uh, to round this picture out, what does happen is that there are times when if you have a verse or verses where there's some variance between the manuscripts and scholars are confident that one of those variants is true, but they don't know which one is. There's a debate about which variant is the authentic one. And uh, this does happen. Um, and most of the time where this happens, these are extremely minor, um, they're grammatical things, or they're things that we can't, spelling differences, or we can't, uh, things we can't translate into English. They're so subtle. But there are times, there are uh, some passages where uh, the meaning of the passage depends on which variant we choose. And the most uh, prominent examples of this are two areas. One is called a passage called the woman caught in adultery in the Gospel of John. It's a story of a woman who's caught in sin and is brought before Jesus. And uh, there is a, a debate among scholars of whether this is authentic or not. And the second passage is the last uh, several verses of the Gospel of Mark. And these are by far and away the most prominent ones. All the other examples are much smaller instances. And uh, usually in contemporary translations, uh, there will be a footnote at these passages of this kind indicating to the reader that, hey, we don't, scholars debate this, or this is not in certain manuscripts. And uh, I think this gets back to when I was talking about the nature of the New Testament, because uh, remember that, that for Christians, the New Testament, the foundation, is, is this spiritual agreement that God writes on the hearts of believers. And um, because of this, these textual variations don't usually disturb Christians because uh, their foundation is on a separate idea. Um, they would disturb them if they were very significant and they overthrew Christian doctrine or teaching, but they don't. They don't. Uh, this is actually something Bart Ehrman agrees with in his, in his Misquoting Jesus book. He, uh, in his appendix, he's being interviewed, and he says that, uh, yes, there's these variants that are uncertain, but they, he says they do not affect core Christian doctrine. And, and I agree with him. I've gone through these variants. Um, they don't seem to affect core Christian teaching. What they do affect is, you know, did Jesus have a woman who's caught adultery brought before him and ask what to do with her? Um, and uh, Christians... You know, there does seem to be some extra biblical evidence that something like this happened. Um, whether it was originally in the Gospel of John or not is another question. But 
anyway, I, I uh, of course, I, I'm giving you my perspective as a Christian, but I think the preservation of the New Testament can be uh, very firmly maintained um, given all of its manuscript tradition. Thank you so much for that. So before we conclude, I wanted to ask, what are your thoughts on how the Quran, the Islamic tradition, understands the New Testament and Jesus? Yeah, as, as you're... Uh, you know, your listeners are no doubt aware that there's claims in the Quran about, well, that I guess suppose I'll divide these into two categories. There seems to be uh, claims in the Quran that, that contradict Christian teaching. Um, there also seems to be claims that some Christians view as, as contradicting what, what Christians believe, that mischaracterize what Christians believe. Um, so perhaps, perhaps I can just give some examples. Uh, you know, let's take the, 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 the crucifixion of Jesus, for instance. Um, Obviously, Christians believe Jesus was crucified. This is uh, not just a subtle detail. It is an absolutely core uh, portion of Christian theology. Um, and uh, the, the Quran uh, in uh, Surah An-Nisa 4.157 uh, seems to say, perhaps can be interpreted as saying, that, that Jesus was not crucified, um, that it, it just uh, appeared that, that way. Um, I think the crucifixion of Jesus is one of those ancient historical phenomenons that we can hold with certainty. I mean, his, his crucifixion, of course, all four Gospels talk about it. The early uh, writings of the New Testament talk about this. Um, other early Christian ideas universally, uh, early Christian documents from starting in the first century with the Didache up to in the second century talk about this, but uh, Jewish sources talk, the Talmud mentions it, Josephus mentions it, the ancient Jewish historian from 90 AD, Tacitus mentions it. It just seems like this is a, even, even early Christian uh, artistry displays crosses. Um, there's in fact a, a kind of anti-Christian graffiti which is mocking Christians for believing in a crucified man. Um, it, it seems beyond doubt. So what do we do with this? What, what is coming with this? I mean, in this particular instance, uh, you know, that verse in the Quran could, I mean, it could be interpreted differently. It could be interpreted as, um, what is it, walakin shabuhulahum, it appeared to them. Uh, you know, it, it, this could be a kind of a statement, interpreted as a statement of, um, it wasn't the Jews who crucified Jesus, it was the Romans. The Jews just thought they did. Or even a broader theological statement about how God was behind this, or maybe the devil was behind this. It wasn't really these folks. Um, there are some strands that, that do that, uh, and it is grammatically possible to, to do that. Um, I, I, of course, think that Jesus was crucified and that it's, it's not true that he, that he wasn't. Um, but there's other, there's other things in the Quran that are perhaps a bit more difficult to, to resolve. Um, you know, for instance, actually in that verse uh, that we were just talking about, uh, Surah 4 of 157, um, it portrays Jews as, as saying, we crucified the Messiah. Um, we, we, uh, we crucified the son of Mary. Uh, and, and, uh, we, we crucified uh, the messenger of Allah as well. And that's interesting because you do find ancient and medieval Jewish sources saying that they crucified Jesus, but they don't call him the Messiah. Uh, they don't call him the messenger of, of Allah. That would be, that would be, that's, I mean, that's not something a Jew would claim. They would claim, no, he wasn't the Messiah. And so uh, there is this idea that perhaps sometimes the Quran is picking up on 
debates, religious debates amongst uh, Christians and other Christians or amongst Christians and Jews and is taking um, a criticism of one group, let's say group A, uh, group A is criticizing group B and the Quran is picking up on that criticism and, and putting and, and believing that group B actually believes this. So Christians would say to Jews, you crucified the Messiah, you crucified the messenger of God. Um, and, and perhaps the Quran is picking up on that and attributing it to Jewish statement. Um, that's one way to explain, for instance, the passage about the Trinity in, in the Quran, um, that, that talks, seems to suggest that, that Mary is part of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity is, uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mary is not part of that. Um, and, uh, the Quran in a certain passage seems to suggest that, that Mary is part of that. And, um, perhaps what's going on there is that you do have, in the time the Quran was being written, you do have, uh, two Christian groups that debated the status of Mary. And, uh, the Church of the East, sometimes they're called Nestorians, they would accuse the more Western Christians of, of exalting Mary too highly and perhaps of worshiping her. And of course, those folks would deny that they were doing that. Um, maybe that's what's being picked up because throughout Christian history, there, there doesn't seem to be a documented case of any Christian sect or, or splinter group, uh, believing this, um, that, that the Trinity was Mary, Jesus, and, and, and God the Father. Um, so that's possible, uh, that, that these things, these things came about that way. Um, other ideas, like a book coming to Jesus, for instance, uh, there seem to be some passages in the Quran that talk about a book coming to Jesus. I don't actually, I, I don't know if there's one that explicitly says a kitab came to Jesus. There seems to be suggestions of it, though, like the gospel came to him and the gospel is viewed as a book. Uh, and this, you know, at that time, it, it, it seems clear that no book, Jesus did not write anything from a historical perspective. And um, but with this, I mean, it's possible that uh, Muhammad is picking up on, on uh, Christian terminology that will talk about the gospel, um, almost as if it is a book. Um, and, and it will talk about uh, Christians in the ancient times, medieval times, and still today, will, as a way of shorthand, refer to the four written gospels as the gospel. And you'll hear that even in churches today. You see it in the ancient world where they'll say, listen to the gospel or read the gospel. And it will be the teachings of Jesus as recorded in the four Gospels. Um, so someone hearing this could could suspect that it was, um, or, or or it could just be that uh, the Quran is being uh, misinterpreted here, that it's not making those claims. Um, it's talking about a message that was given to Jesus called the Gospel, the Injil, at which Christians would quite agree with that Jesus was given a message, the Gospel that he preached. Um, so that is another way to to interpret that. Um, Perhaps the the biggest tension um, is that the Quran explicitly denies that Jesus is the Son of God, and uh, it claims that that in and this is a different kind of tension because um, Christians do believe this actually, and it credits them with believing this, and um, and uh, this is uh, you know a difference in theology, of course, and um, I I would say though that it, I find it. It's very curious that when the Quran talks about Jesus, there are uh, many instances where it talks about Jesus in ways that sound deeply Christian. It's not something, for instance, a, a Jew would ever say about Jesus. So 
the Quran will call him Messiah. Uh, the Quran seems to call him the the Kalam, the the Word of Allah, which um, can be interpreted as in harmony with Christian conceptions that that uh, Jesus is the Word of God. Uh, this goes back to the New Testament itself. The Logos, Greek word for Logos, Logos to say the Word of God. Um, the, the Quranic conception of how the Holy Spirit uh, uh, was kind of blown into Mary. I mean, the Gospel of Luke, when it's talking about the conception of Jesus, says that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. Um, and so uh, it's interesting that there is this alignment, but then this denial of, of the sonship of Jesus. And uh, I... I think, um, at least for contemporary listeners, um, I should probably mis uh, correct what sometimes a, a mistaken perception of Christianity is, that when, when Christians use the term son of God, uh, they do not mean that God uh, slept with Mary or had sexual intercourse with Mary. Um, this is very clear from the Gospels that Mary was a virgin. Um, what they mean is that uh, Jesus is related to God the Father um, not biologically, but in the same way that a son is related to a father. So he's of the same nature as, as God, uh, in the same, from a Christian perspective, in the same sense that God's word and God's spirit are divine. Um, Jesus is also given that, that same status. And, uh, Christians believe that just as the word of God is within God and, and comes forth from God, so the, the son of God, uh, was within God and came forth from God. Um, Trinitarian theology is a, we could talk for hours about that and I'd be happy to do so. But, um, that is maybe what the Quran is picking up on that it has uh, a misperception of what Christians mean by son, but, um, or it could just be denying that he's the son. I mean, thank you so much again. Um, it was super fascinating and insightful conversation. Before we conclude, I wanted to ask if you had any projects, any, any, anything you're working on right now that's in the pipeline. Thank you. Yeah, this conversation has been a, a delight for me, too. Uh, thank you for having me on. Um, I have a bunch of projects going on. I, I uh, have a translation that I'm uh, just about wrapping up from uh, on a, by a, a man named Ishidat of Merv. He, he was a Church of the East author, about 800 AD. He is a commentary in the Book of Daniel uh, that I've, I'm translating and I'm just about wrapping that up. I have another book that I have a proposal out. It's uh, the book version of my dissertation. Um, the, the provisional title is uh, The Revelation of, uh, no, excuse me, The Last Book, The Revelation of John and the Making of the New Testament. And it tells the story that I alluded to of uh, Revelation and its entry into the New Testament and its um, controversy in later, in later Christian circles. Um, because some, especially Eastern Christians, did, uh, had trouble with the Book of Revelation. It tells that story. Um, other than that, uh, I'm, I'm teaching classes, and I've got uh, you know a whole list of articles I'd like to write, but we'll see if I get to it. Um, it's it's a strange time right now, so who knows what will happen. Right, uh, thank you again, Dr. Schmidt, and with that, I'd like to conclude the episode. Thank you very much, Asher.